I'm Wes, for those of you that don't know. Um, let me pray for us, and we'll jump in. Father, thanks for this time to be gathered together as a family, and we thank you also um, for this time to get in your word and to consider what you have to say. Uh, God, we know that you want to shape us and mold us and encourage us and admonish us, and we open ourselves up to you this morning as we head into this time. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, I may have shared this story before, but when I was in high school, um, I worked at Dick's Clothing and Sporting Goods in the footwear department. Yep. Well, one night it was extra slow, and we had um, not much to do, so generally we were cleaning up, and I was breaking down cardboard boxes in the back and had to carry them down to kind of the loading dock area, and I threw them down in this great big mound of boxes that had accumulated that day, and um, I think I was turning around, and all of a sudden I heard the, a door open, and I hear, hey, Wes, and I turn around, and it's Dan McCann, my store manager, and uh, he walks in, and he goes, hey, could you help me with that pile of cardboard and get it out to the dumpster, and this was like February, unpleasantly cold outside. And of course, I said, do it yourself, Dan. No. I said, as you would expect, of course, right? It's my job. So I start kind of organizing, and how am I going to take on this mound of... And, and I saw movement over here, and I turned, and I look, and Dan had taken his suit jacket off. And he was tucking his tie in, rolling his sleeves up, and he came over, and he helped me uh, take that cardboard out. Did I mention he was the store manager? That had a, a very powerful effect on me. I didn't really think of too much about it in the moment, but we talked for about five minutes, got rid of all the, the cardboard. Um, and, and so I got thinking, like, arguably the, the most important man in the store was helping me throw out, well, you know, working with one of the least important people in the store to throw out something that nobody in the store wanted. And um, it occurred to me afterward, and I think in that moment, I just, I just thought, that's kind of what I thought at the time. And uh, now, what I realize is that Dan, Dan really didn't lower himself. He didn't lower himself. He didn't look down on me at all. What he did is he treated me with dignity equal to his own. He served alongside of me, and he treated me with the same respect that I afforded him. In my mind, he showed me by his upside-down actions of a store manager and a wee little lad, I wasn't that small, um, what Jesus was doing with the Beatitudes. Particularly, Dan taught me what meekness, what meekness looked like that day. I'd ask you to open your Bibles up to Matthew 5. We're going to read the first uh, 12 verses in Matthew Now when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him, and he began to teach them. He said, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. 
Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. In the Beatitudes, our rabbi Jesus shares nine upside-down postures that we need to embrace if we want to live in the kingdom of God. Nine counterintuitive ways that will lead to a life of flourishing. The last time I preached, I preached, uh, we looked at the, the first beatitude, and I want to do just a little bit of review on the word blessed. Did you know we were in a series? It's like every six months or so, so we'll, we'll keep working through there. We'll be done in like 2050 or so. Um, so, so Scott McKnight gives us a little help here. Um, the Greek word makarios, um, New Testament scholar Scott McKnight defines it as this way, a blessed person is someone who, because of a heart for God, is promised and enjoys God's favor regardless of that person's status or countercultural condition. You'll remember, perhaps, that Jesus' audience was, was, he was sharing these Beatitudes, the beginning of the what? Sermon on the, his, the Sermon on the Mount, his great teaching, right, that we in, if we intend to live and follow our great rabbi, we want to pay attention, and which is why we're looking at this one this morning. And so Jesus is up on the mount, and he is preaching to a gathering of people, a mixed bag of Pharisees and Sadducees, zealots and Essenes, commoners and the poor, a group of rich and powerful, a group of poor and white-collar, blue-collar people, people that are very different, but they were all unified in, in one sense because they all agreed that they didn't want to be kicked around and ruled by the Romans. So as we think about this idea of blessed, I want to I help maybe define a little bit of this. And McKnight, in a book, I could tell you which one it was, but um, he kind of helps us with this, and I just want to kind of go through this list. So blessed people live under God's good rule, right? The people of Israel are the blessed people. They are the chosen people, and then everybody else is the cursed, the cursed group. Um, so blessed people are approved of and supported by the God of Israel because of their trust and their obedience to him. Blessed people experience the current good blessings and will experience future blessings that, that come with living life the way God prescribes. Particularly, we'll, we'll be blessed if we learn to love God, receive his love, and learn to how to love other people in the same way God loves them. Love God, love others. The two great commandments. All are welcome to live under God's good rule and experience the good life. The earthly down and outers have equal value. We were talking about that a little earlier, and that really is one of the main points this morning. They have equal value in the kingdom. There is no distinction unlike we find in our world. The last on the left 
live out, the blessed people live out of an inner disposition that relates to God and others because of a properly esti- a proper estimation of oneself. A proper estimation of oneself. When we get our identity correct, when we understand who we are, we can then relate well to God in a healthy way. And we can also relate to our fellow man in a healthy way. Conversely, cursed people live under their own, really, self-made rule. Maybe they're kicked around by the enemy more than we are, perhaps. But they're opposed by the God of Israel because of their stiff-necked rebellion. It leads to destruction. So he disciplines Right? Like he disciplines us, he disciplines those that aren't his children, right? Because he longs for them to come. He longs for them to put their trust and their faith in him. Believe that that's what God is up to. Cursed people may experience temporary earthly happiness now as they rule their own little kingdom um, with power that they have, but ultimately they will miss out on the good life. That's what blessed means. Blessed is the good life, the life that God offers us to live in the kingdom now as well as into the future. I'm going to jump down here for the sake of time. Cursed people are stuck living a life of posing and posturing in unhealthy relational ways in order to try and make a good life happen for themselves. So maybe you'll find that helpful, maybe not, but... Uh, We'll move along here. So, Jesus is sharing in the Beatitudes a clear distinction of who is blessed, living Yahweh's teaching, and who is cursed on that other side. So, this morning's, I love that picture. I love what it says. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Power under control. Power under control. Today we're going to look at this third beatitude. For many of us, we hear these words and it's kind of confusing. We hear, blessed are the meek. Does that make sense? Right? We think the meek. Well, that doesn't really play out in the world that we live in, the world of power, right? If we want something here, usually we have to take it by force, or we think we do. You have to take it by force. You have to go after it. It's the strongest and the tallest and the loudest and the most... Uh, the richest, perhaps, the most connected that usually win, the people with the power, they get what they want, and the meek, what happens to them? What happens to them? They get stomped on. They get used. They get oppressed. They get taken advantage of. Their stuff gets taken away. So how could it be that Jesus is saying that we're actually blessed when we find ourselves in a posture of weakness? or a posture of humility. It doesn't make logical sense, but it's nonetheless true. In our earthly life, we often evaluate ourselves and others in terms of greater than or less than, right? It's often out of these evaluations that we form our identity and our worth. Here are some earthly-minded ways that, that we might evaluate whether we're succeeding in life. Now, you may agree, you may not agree, but here's, here's, the, here's the list, or a list, right? So we might, we might measure ourselves against someone else in that the realm of am I successful, right? You might compare and say, I have a steady job and I'm pretty good at it. I make some money. 
Um, I'm moving up the corporate ladder faster than that lazy guy over there. My kids are succeeding. Uh, my, my dog passed obedience school. You know, life's looking up. Clearly, I'm a lot better than that wreck over there. So we can measure ourselves and, ooh, I'm, I'm up here, right? Or am I attractive? Might compare ourselves to others. Well, I'm not as overweight as that guy who clearly spends too much time at Jesse's Barbecue. Shout out to Jesse's, yum. <laughs> or how about, we comp- how about sometimes we compare ourselves in, the, in terms of wealth, right? We look around and we might compare our, our material things and say, hey, you know, I got that single family house. It's pretty comfortable. And, and, then, and then what do you do? Then you, then you go over to the neighbor's house and you realize, well, yeah, that 1,200 square foot house could fit in this house about four times. And then maybe you use the restroom and you, you walk in and you go, well, this is what a five-year-old bathroom looks like. Mine's got 1968 tiles flecked with color and, and it's a mess, right? And all of a sudden, the pegs, what's happening? Oh, man, I can't keep up with the Joneses here. And, and so maybe I feel bad about myself. I feel much less successful compared to them. But hey, you know, if we can't feel successful, um, we, can't, we, we don't measure up attract, attractively or wealth, then, then maybe, um, maybe we can be smart. Maybe I, could, maybe I could, like, hold it together with this, right? This week, Griffin, uh, Griffin and I have been working a little, I didn't ask him if I could say this, but he's got a project, and we've been working at putting this car together. It's like a self-propelled car thing, and we're making a mess, and borrowing tools anyway but there there are certain times where like hey that'll work right and we put it together and it sort of does what it's supposed to do and you kind of like hey that was pretty clever yeah i didn't mm, we cut that we didn't lose any fingers all right right and then what do you do then then you you turn on a mark rober youtube video so anybody who know mark rober is he's a former nasa engineer he makes these videos that millions of people watch Right? And then you realize that, that Mark Rober made the same car out of the same material, but he was able to like, put so much power in there that it like, chirped his tires, and it would stop on a dime because he added a, a braking system and transmission made out of spaghetti. <laughs> and he did it in like an hour. And all of a sudden, I'm just not smart enough. It's just not going to cut it. Um, or, or maybe it's virtue, right? I bet I'm more virtuous than that next person. Oh yeah, I bet I got him. I bet I'm more honest. I'm more courageous. I'm certainly more compassionate than that guy, than that woman. I'm more generous. Hmm. I bet I'm. I've got more integrity in my life because that guy's a liar over there. I'm fair, self-controlled. I'm probably a lot more humble than them too. These are the kinds of comparison games that we play in this world, right? We're drawn into them. Bigger, better, faster, stronger, and we, we're drawn into them. And maybe you've recognized, as I've talked, maybe, maybe there are some of these ways that you measure. And, and, uh, but I want, here's what I want. We're going to exercise a little something, okay? I want you to turn to one or two people around you, waiting for the groan, there's a, yeah. I want you to turn to one or two people near you, and I want you to respond to these questions. I'm going to give you like three minutes. Three minutes? Three minutes. Ready? 
want you to respond to them. Where do you struggle with competition or comparisons? And then secondly, how do you tend to get caught in the trap of feeling greater than or less than others? Okay? All right. Can I let you off the hook? How uncomfortable was that? You just wait till later. I got something else for you. It'll be fun. So, yeah, this is fun. They shouldn't let me do this. So as you told stories and you thought about this idea of greater than or less than, how many of you really like to be greater than? Watch out for these people. How about less than? Anybody, anybody like, I prefer less than? Or, or I'm okay with less than? Yeah? I mean, each one of them, sometimes, you know, they have their, their benefits. I, w- I just stopped down to, to talk to Diane down here, and, and they were talking about pie making and, and how, like, like, we can compare, like, oh, I can't make pie like grandma, right? And so, so you can either, like, try to outdo grandma, which is never a good idea. Write that down, kids. <laughs> Write that down. You never try to outdo grandma, Mm-mm. right? Or you can kind of submit and, and like we were talking about, like you can do the fill the bowls up with all the ingredients. So grandma just has to go smile to the camera and, you know, those Rachel Ray kind of things, right? But yeah, so sometimes there's a, there's a positive side to being greater than or there's a positive side to being less than. But by and large, we don't necessarily, we, we like to be in control, Right? We like to be in control. Well, what we're touching on here is something called the social comparison theory. We won't spend a whole lot of time, but I think it's important to to help understand. This is how our world, our earthly world, the earthly life works. The social comparison theory is the idea that individuals determine their own social and personal worth based on how they stack up against others. Festinger noticed people's tendencies to make comparisons and to try and figure out our sense of self or identity by observing other people and saying, who is better off than me and who is worse off than me? Well, I think what Jesus is doing with this blessed are the meek thing is he is absolutely derailing this idea. He's derailing this idea. This way that we've just been talking about, that we do this, right? It's not the way God intends for us to be in this world. This humanistic idea. Blessed are the meek because finding our identity, we're, talking, we're in an identity series with our students, but finding our identity by comparing ourselves to another is a fool's game. Because I might, I might look better than, than Mike today, but man, he nails it next week when his wife brings me cookies, right? Thank you, Englishes, for cookies. See, Jesus intent. yeah, they're hidden. Don't worry about it, Moyer. Stay away from my cookies. Jesus intends for us to live out an inner disposition that relates to God and others in a healthy way because we have a proper, healthy estimation of our God-given worth, our image-bearing worth. We bear the image of God. The wise teacher in Ecclesiastes 4 said, Then I observed the mo- that most people are motivated by success because they envy their neighbors. But this too is meaningless, like chasing the wind. We'll never keep up with the Joneses. 
but we'll probably have a heart attack trying it. Here's the good thing. We're, we're in pretty good company. Even the disciples struggled with comparisons and posturing. There are a couple of times mentioned in the Gospels where they're walking along the road and they're arguing about who's the greatest. Knuckleheads? Not really. I mean, we're there, right? There's a time in Matthew 20 when the mother of James and John, what is she doing? She's vying to what? Get her sons on either shoulder of Jesus when he becomes what? King. She wants her kids to have power and authority. So she's vying for that. This is kind of fun. Even the disciples who spent, I'm guesstimating, eight hours a day with Jesus for three years. You know how long that is? 8,760 hours they got to spend with Jesus, and they still didn't get it. They still didn't get everything, right? So we're in good company. This isn't a shame. This isn't a beatdown. But it is a challenge for us. Um, How do we move away from our natural tendency towards competition and comparison and taking advantage of other people and toward the new reality of meekness and humility that Jesus is calling us to? How do we do that? I see a lot of anxious hand-wringing over issues of identity in our society, right? We're aware of these things. We hear it coming from school. We hear it from all sorts of different, uh, different avenues. And to be clear, there certainly are reasons to be concerned. But I can't help but believe that a major part of a solution to this is getting our identity right. Is our Christians getting our identity right to understand God's people learning and understanding our own belovedness. I think a security arises in us, right? Those of you that have been walking with Christ and you know who you are in Christ, not that you get it right all the time, there is a security, there is a stability in you, right? And I think as we live out of that and we live out of that secure place, we, be, we are just, our character is naturally more gracious, we're, more, we're less anxious. We're non-anxious, truth-bearing, peacemaking friends. We can be that to a confused, hurt world. I believe that that is what God wants us to be, and I believe that the gospel says that will transform our society. But it starts with us understanding it, right? It starts with us getting it and living that out. I think it's exactly why so many sinners, you think about that, so many sinners were comfortable with Jesus. They invited him to to their house. (laughs) This holy, perfect rabbi teacher, they they were all right having having him over because I think Jesus loved them out of that secure love that he received from his father. Jesus invites us into meekness and humility because it offers us an upside-down way of navigating our sense of self and our identity. Friends, we are beloved. We are beloved, and each of us is made in the image of God. And there is no greater than or less than. We are all beloved. Every one of us. You see this from David in Psalm 139. It's a psalm about identity. 
and really developing a sense of self that's oriented around who you are as someone made in the image of the Creator. For you created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know that full well. David had a sense of identity that was rooted in what God said about him, and he functioned out of it. Luke 3, 22, And the Holy Spirit descended on Jesus in bodily form like a dove, and a voice came from heaven saying, You are my Son whom I love. With you I am well pleased. These words of identity spoken over Jesus by his Father actually came before Jesus had done much of anything on earth. In some sense, Jesus did nothing to deserve them. He simply existed. A few years ago, I was struggling with this sense of identity and worthlessness. I was spinning around, and I remember our worship pastor, this is when we were up in New York, our worship pastor challenged me to go home and meditate on Zephaniah 3.17. Here's Zephaniah 3.17. Side note, homework. Go home and meditate on Zephaniah 3.17. The Lord your God is with you, the mighty warrior who saves he will take great delight in you. In his love, you will no longer, he will no longer rebuke you, but will rejoice over you with singing. You know, it's one thing to read and memorize this verse and verses like it that talk about our identity. But what if we actually believed and acted on these truths? I think that's where I fall short. I forget this. I forget a lot of it. And I slip easily into the ways of the world, the posturing and the posing and the comparison. So we look at this verse. If God is our Lord, your authority, and he is with you, it's because he wants to be. God can do whatever he wants to. He wants to be with you. If God is the mighty warrior who saves and he is with you, then what do we have to fear in this world? We can relax. Because it isn't our job to be our own savior, and it isn't our job to be anybody else's savior. If God takes great delight in you, it means he's pleased with you. God is pleased with you. God is pleased with you. God is pleased with you. He's pleased with who you are, not because of what you do or what you don't do. God is pleased with you because he sees you through the lens of Jesus and his sacrifice. Jesus absorbed our sin and therefore God is pleased with us. He delights in us. He delights in who you're becoming. Just like we delight in our children and who they're becoming. I remember holding our boys in the hospital before they ever did anything. Good, bad, frustrating, whatever, right? And I can remember back and just delighting in that little person, counting those toes and fingers, and I still delight in them. I still delight in them. 
they've made some mistakes like I have, and I still delight in him. God's no different, friends. In his love, God will no longer rebuke us. God's holy wrath towards sin was taken care of through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. And when we choose Christ, we now live under grace. In a sense, Jesus has let us off the hook. But I wonder how many of us stay on the hook, put ourselves back on the hook. I remember spending a lot of time over the years, and I actually try to go back to this verse fairly regularly because of the way I struggle with identity or struggle with comparison. I remember spending a lot of time just thinking about that, that idea that Jesus, that God rejoices over me with singing rejoices over me with singing when I, when I feel unlovable. It helps me battle those things. I'd encourage you to find a verse, find something that you can go back to that will push back the shame or that feeling of being unlovable. The enemy's after us. Can you sit here this morning and receive God's tender singing over you, friends? Can you open your heart this morning to accept that despite all of your sin, your self-focused will, your fear, your pride, your anger, despite your posturing and posing, despite your failure, despite all the ways you have purposely rebelled and turned from God, despite all the ways you fall short, for all the reasons that you don't even like about yourself, can you imagine God holding your face between his hands and singing his love over you? You are beloved. Your life has been purchased at the greatest of costs. You bear the very image of God. What if we could actually believe that? What if we could get better at that? I'm going to make you uncomfortable again. I want you to get back with the people that you spoke with earlier. And I want you to spend a couple moments saying these words to somebody's eyeballs. Same slow, same deliberately. Look them in the cones. Feel that uncomfortableness. Ready, go. These are the words you're going to say. You are made in the divine image of God, a creature of infinite worth. Ready? Do it. How do we do? Is that awkward? Do we need to keep doing it? Yeah, probably. Isn't it kind of fun to hear words of life spoken to your eyeballs? Now, if only, like, and hopefully that gets to our heart, because that is true about you. It's true about you. Woke up this morning and went, oh boy, I'm preaching. Comparison. Oh no. I have to stand in front of my friends, and they're usually pretty gracious, but it's still nerve-wracking, right? These things help me 
when I understand myself to be made in the image of God. I don't have to be perfect up here, but I have to be me. These are true. You are made in the divine image of God, a creature of infinite worth. Something powerful about speaking life to each other. Jesus did it regularly. He spoke truth and dignity to the meek and to the humble, to the Samaritan woman, to tax collectors, to stinky fishermen, to lowly children. Spoke words of life to outsiders, to prostitutes, women, to those with disabilities. He even spoke them, yes, to religious people. Jesus could do that because he knew his own worth to his Father. Because he knew his worth to the Father, he knew the Father's worth to the people. And he treated them as such. As my friend Dan McCann treated me like we were buds. That's how Jesus saw them. It wasn't this hierarchical nonsense. And this is exactly what God is calling us to do, friends. To be so secure in Christ that we can live non-anxious lives, speaking words of life and love to each other. Even being able to wholeheartedly speak words of life and love to those that we consider our enemies. Those that we disagree with. Those that would say, oppose our agendas. God wants us to change. He wants to change our hearts so that we can speak words of life and love to them. Turn this place upside down. Jesus, at the end of the sermon, where this passage is from, says anyone who hears these words and puts them into practice is wise. And so I want to suggest one practice that you can take on this week that might help you more deeply. I I mentioned the, the Zephaniah 3.17. There's one practice. Take some time spending that. Maybe, maybe print it out. Have it, on your, have it in your car on the way to work. A mirror when you're getting ready and getting ready in the morning. That's what women do, right? They do this. I don't know. I don't know what that is. But I challenge you to set an alarm on your phone or on your computer and, and like three times during the day, and I'm going to do that this week, three times during the day, and when it goes off, I want you to pray this, and it goes back to what we're saying. Thank you that I am made in the divine image, a person of infinite dignity and worth. It's a little practice. Maybe that could even pop up as a reminder on your phone. Let's pray. It is in you that we have our being, Lord. Will you help us to grasp this idea of our own belovedness? There are so many reasons why it's hard to accept your love. Holy Spirit, will you whisper words of truth over the lies that we believe about ourselves, over the lies we believe about other people, even our enemies, so that we may be rooted and established in your deep and abiding love. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.